0: So we are continuing our series on 1 Timothy, we're on chapter 6. Um, so I had a crazy week last week. It was like a very Korean drama kind of a week. Um, work-wise, it was like, oh, very 힘들어. you know what I'm saying? Um, and one of the reasons why it was so difficult was um, there was this case that I kind of messed up, right? Um, and that could have potentially caused major issues with one of my major clients, and um, it was just a very harrowing situation. I think I told some of you last week that I think I w- I'm going to get fired, right? And Kyo agrees, right? And so it was, it was that harrowing. It was that harrowing. And there were like multiple because lawyers always give you a few solutions, right? If you ask me for an answer, I'll give you three possible solutions: solution one, solution two, solution three. Solution one that I gave my clients was a miracle. If solution one happened, then everything would go away. But that's miraculous. Chances of that happening, it's not very high. And there's two and there's three. I give, you, I give them options. Right? By the way, the way you practice law is that you give your clients option and you recommend what the best option you think it is. That's what lawyers do. Okay? If you go to a lawyer that says, I don't know, what do you think? Get out of it. That's, not, that's a horrible lawyer. Okay? So three options, one, two, and three. And I was praying for number one to happen, but that's a miracle. And you know what happened? What happened? Number one happened. And even my partner, who's not a a believer, hi, Dan, how are you doing? He says, you're very lucky. And I said, luck, or I thought to myself, luck is the grace of God. It's a miracle, truly a miracle. But this is what I realized when, when I experienced miracles. The sense of elation, the sense of praise God, that only lasts a few hours. The next day, you go back to the same person that you were before. That's work, but I also had a really good time with the Lord. I'm in love with 2 Corinthians. I can live in 2 Corinthians forever. And what I realized was, What makes me feel close to the Lord? You know that song, You Are are More Than Enough? What gives me that sense when I, what gives me that confession, the sense when I think the Lord is enough? It's not when miracles happen. It's not. It's when, when you commune with God when you examine your life in the light of God's word when you fellowship with God when you repent when you when you confess when you when you lean on God when you have that relationship with God he becomes so real there is no other substitute there is no miracle out there that can immediately patch up your relationship with the Lord there is none it is in his word and living in His Word. Living with Him in His Word. That makes you understand and feel the love of God. Do You understand? That's why preachers presenting the, word, the best Word of God to you is really, really important. Because this is one of the ways in which God communicates His love for you. And that's why... Paul finds the false teachers so despicable. That's why the Bible has such a high ceiling for high calling for pastors. And that's why God says, pastors, you will be responsible for what you have taught your flock. And if you're in the pastorate for any other motive besides rearing God's, shepherding God's flock through his word, then you're in big trouble. Some people become pastors to make a career out of their lives. Some people become pastors because they want immediate respect. There's nothing like the word pastor to buy, buy, buy someone respect in the church, especially a Korean church. Oh, 목사님 목사님 하나 Here you go, 목사님. Here's more food for you. There is nothing like the position of a pastor that can get you automatic street credits in the church. And people do that. But if the motive is false, then God will judge you, pastor. And that's why Paul finds the teachers, so false teachers, so despicable. Because the motive of these false teachers is money. Paul says, I think in verse 5, we're not going to cover it today. Paul says in verse 5 of chapter 6, he says, these false teachers are in the game because they think being, being part of the church, being a teacher of the church, is a, 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 is, will lead them to substantial financial gain. Is there security? Is there
1: financial security? They're in it for the money.
0: And Paul says, don't do that. It is in this light of this context... Of these false teachers doing it for the money and when they are doing it for the money how destructive their ministry is is within this context of these false teachers that Paul warns about money. Let's go to verse 6. He says verse 6 he says but, but means don't be like the false teachers who are in it for the ministry for the money but godliness with contentment is great gain. He says don't do it for the money but godliness with contentment is great gain. What does he mean by godliness? Godliness means having a deep reverence, devotion to God. You have this deep, respectful, reverential love for God. And this deep devotional reverential love for God leads you to strive to live a holy, sanctified life. John MacArthur says, Godliness is the right attitude and response towards the true creator. True creator God, a preoccupation from the heart with holy and sacred realities. It is respect for what is due to God and thus the highest of all virtues. He's saying, Godliness is being highly devoted to God and giving God what he truly deserves as creator, our devotion, our everything. Godliness, yes, part of godliness is saying no to sin. But godliness also involves striving to live in accordance to the will of God because you love him so. And the best example of this Godliness, is the men's conference a couple of weeks ago. Was it last week? Like last Saturday. Not yesterday, but last Saturday. Oh, man. Ten brothers, right? Gathered together in a circle, right? With chips and coffee. Great combo, right? Nothing like potato chips and warm coffee. And the speaker came. And he had all these lists of questions, right? The speaker, right? And when the speaker came, and he asked those questions. I think the speaker expected certain common Christian responses to these questions. You know what I mean? He's doing, he's doing this for a while. And we, when he asked these questions about holiness, he heard a lot of, you know, Christian-like answers. But our guys, when the guest speaker asks these questions, they give deep, like godly,
1: Answer. And I go look at my guys.
0: They don't give the standard cliche Christian answers. They give answers from people who know God and who strives to live in accordance to His will. I was so proud of my guys because my guys, as though they're not perfect, and Mrs. Your wife will know you're not perfect. But my gosh, those ten guys know the Lord, and there's a striving to live in accordance to his will. That's godliness. Okay? Godliness, Paul says, a devotion to God, and living in accordance to his will with contentment is great gain. What is contentment? Contentment is a sense of sufficient satisfaction. A state of contentment makes one independent of outward circumstances and satisfied with one's inner resources. Enabling to maintain a spiritual... This is such a long answer. Basically, contentment means feeling a deep satisfaction with what you have and what you are. Alistair Beck says, is it, contentment is a sense of satisfaction that results in having, is a satisfaction that comes in having what one desires or from not, from not desiring anything more than what one has. Alistair Beck saying, contentment comes when you are truly satisfied with what you have or not caring much for what you do not have. So either they're saying, thank you, God, for what I have, or not really desiring things that you do not
1: have, that's contentment.
0: It is the opposite of what the philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer says. Arthur Schopenhauer, he's the most negative philosopher ever. He says, Schopenhauer says, human beings are just never-ending ball of desire. They're never content, Schopenhauer says. But Paul says, no, it's possible. In God, it is possible. In God, it is possible to be thankful what you have and not desire what you don't need. Contentment comes from having an objective view of your material possessions Verse seven, for we brought nothing. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. People with contentment look. They look at material things, and they have an objective view. We brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of the world. We come naked, and we leave naked. That's true. Let's be honest. That's true. Whatever you have, whatever I have in this life is not really yours or mine, right? So, I love my office in D.C. I really love it so, right? I walk into my office. I see the streets of D.C. and I go, ah. But after I feel, ah, the second thought is I'm not going to be here forever. This isn't going to be my office forever. It's just not. Whether they fire me or I retire, it's not my office forever. That's true. And everything that you have, that's what it is. Is your house really yours? No, it will belong to someone else after you die your house belonged to someone before you, unless you're Shaan and Haran who who built brand new homes, right? But even Shaan and Haran, after they leave that house, it's going to be someone else's house. Your house is never yours. You're there for maybe 20, 30 years if you're lucky. Is your children really yours? You feel like they're yours when they're babies, when they cannot get enough of you. But when they're teenagers, they want distance from you. And eventually, they become like you, who call your parents once a week. Your kids are not really yours. Nothing is really yours. A few years ago, my mom's older sister, my aunt, passed away. I was an executor of her will. And being an executor of your will, I oversaw the disposition of all her property. She had a nice house in South Lake Bluff, South Carolina. Was it Lake Bluff, South Carolina? It's a golfing area, God's waiting room. People just died, right? She had a nice house. She has a Lexus. She has a grand piano. She had all these plates she collected in her, during her lifetime. All those things were her valuable possessions. Her car, her house, her plates. When she dies, you know what happens? Every single one of them, I couldn't give them away. I couldn't give away her piano. I couldn't give away her plates. All these things that she felt was so important to her when she was alive. When she's dead, no one wanted anything from it.
1: Is it going to be different for you? Your kids will want your clothes. Right?
0: Your kids will want your piano. Your kids will want your car. Being contentment means having an objective understanding of your possessions. And don't let it be more important that it actually is than they actually are. That's why Jesus says, it is absolutely crazy, foolish to devote your short life here in the amassment of stuff. Because rust and moth will destroy, thieves come and, come and steal. It is absolutely bananas to devote your life in the acclimation of stuff. Accumulation of stuff. person with contentment knows that. It doesn't mean sell all you have and all poverty, but contentment comes from having objective understanding of material stuff. Verse 8. But if we have, if we have food and clothing with them, we shall be content. People with con- spiritual contentment also understands we need things in this world to live. We're just as body as our spirits, okay? And our bodies need things to live. We need clothing. Clothing here means shelter. We need clothing at home, and we need food. And these are what we need. And God will provide with these things. He really will. That's what I'm realizing these days as I'm praying through my work. The fact that I have this job and the fact that I have success in this job, it's all the providence of God. It It really is. My paycheck, the money that I get is really God working behind the scenes of letting me succeed in this field of work. He really does provide what we need in this world. He really does. Jesus says in the Lord's Prayer, pray for our daily bread. Meaning pray to God for the things that you need, for the material things you need on a daily basis. Because God will provide them for you. And that's absolutely true. He does provide you with your necessities. So if you're looking for a job, pray. Seriously, pray. And depend on the Father who promised to give them things to you. Okay? But let's not go bananas here. Let's not think God owes you a spectacular job or God owes you more stuff. Does He? Paul says, if we have food and clothing and shelter, that is enough. How can a person be this spiritually content? It is when they have an objective view of God, it is when they have this understanding of his love, it is when God becomes the treasure. You can have an objective understanding of stuff. If you don't have God, stuff becomes more spiritual. Stuff inhabits more spiritual value. It's not a BMW that you drive, it is a symbol of your success, right? That's what people do without God. They spiritualize their possessions. It's not a Chanel bag, right? It is a symbol. Of you're someone important and that you've made it. That's why immigrant people love their fancy cars and fancy bags. Because they prove to the Americans in this world. It's true. They prove to Americans in this world, you cannot ignore me. Because I have a Mercedes Benz. White people don't care. But your mom thinks white people care about those things. When you don't have God, material stuff becomes, have spiritual value to them. But when you're deeply godly, when you're deeply satisfied in God alone, you have an f- objective understanding of stuff. He says "Godly content, godliness with contentment is great gain. The word gain here means wealth, treasure. Paul is saying, if you have godliness, if you have content with contentment, then you are so wealthy. Why are you so wealthy? Because godliness with contentment will let you know, will, will let you see that God himself is the treasure. If you don't have a contentment, if you don't have contentment with your stuff, God will never be enough for you. God will never be enough for you if you don't have contentment. But if you have contentment with godliness, you will see God is your treasure. And there is no other treasure like God. That's why Jesus says the kingdom of God is like someone who discovers a treasure in the field. And to, in order to buy that field, buy that treasure, he buys the field, he invests everything that he has to buy the field that contains the treasure. This parable is saying the kingdom of God, the knowledge of God, our relationship with God is the most valuable thing, worth it to give us all we have to have it. It is that valuable. Psalm 63, Psalm 70 says, God satisfies, God, I'm sorry, Psalm, Psalm but what is it? Uh, Psalm 63 and Psalm 107 says, God satisfies my soul deeply. There's nothing that satisfies my soul than God. My favorite, my favorite hymn: As the dear panthers for the water, so my so long as after thee, you alone are my strength my desire, and I long to worship thee. God, when you know God, he is an amazing treasure. That's why Paul in Philippians chapter 2 says, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ my Lord. Paul says, no wing, a present continuous tense. To Paul, knowing Christ, intellectually knowing Christ, emotionally knowing Christ, personally, experientially knowing Christ, that is far more valuable. Then everything that he has lost, what he has, he has lost family ties, he has lost reputation, he has lost reputation in community, in academia, he has lost everything. But Paul says, all these things that I've lost is worth it because Jesus Christ, he constantly re, like, makes me know who he is and when I discover the treasures of Christ. Everything is just dung, garbage, he said. My friends, Do you know that Jesus Christ is knowable? Listen to me carefully. The purpose of the Christian life is for you to continuously know Jesus Christ. The purpose of the Christian life is not God saved you and now you will do stuff for him. That's what our mentality is, right? Oh, God saved me? Christian life is i being saved and now I'm going to do stuff for God. That's not the Christian life. The Christian Christian life is a never-ending pursuit of the intellectual, personal, experiential knowledge of Jesus Christ. He does not stop revealing himself to you. And when he reveals himself to you, you will see he is far better than anything in the world. The great tragedy, the great mistake, not mistake, the great, I don't know, the deadly thing in Christian life is people stop pursuing the knowledge of Christ. For some strange odd reason, people think, I know everything about Christ. Christ no you do not i've been doing this for the past what 30 years now and i still discover more things about christ i preach what 50 sermons for the last 25 years how many sermons is that 3000 i don't know i've preached 3000 sermons and still i discover more things about Christ. And the more things I discover about Christ, the more I know how valuable He is. A lot of Christians, the basis of their Christianity is this. When they were young in their 20s, in their teens or 20s, or whatever, they had this passionate experience with Christ. They, have, they were all passion. And very little knowledge, right? All passion, very little knowledge.
1: But the little, but the little knowledge they have
0: doesn't go deeper. You come to church, that passion has gone, you still come to church, but the basis of people's faith is not their deepening of their understanding of Christ, but nostalgia. Of what they used to be when they were younger, what they used to feel when they were were younger. Those heydays, those glory days, is the basis of their faith. It shouldn't be. The basis of your faith is a continually, continual understanding of the deep presence of Jesus Christ. When you know Him, oh, He is far better than anything. You need to be humble to know you don't really know him that well.
1: But he will reveal himself to you.
0: You know what happens when you know Christ? He builds you up. Look, last week, Pastor Eugene's sermon, Romans chapter 8, verse 28. God says, "In in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. What is the word good here? What is the word good? What is the good that God works out all things for our good? The the good here means conformity to Jesus Christ. Paul is saying in in Romans chapter 8, God is working out everything in your life, whether good or bad, so that you will conform to the image of Christ. What is the image of Christ? Jesus Christ is the perfect human being. Jesus Christ is a person of truth. Jesus Christ is a person of kindness. Jesus Christ is a person of justice. Jesus Christ is a person of love and mercy and grace. And God's purpose for your life is to make you more like him. When you discover more about Jesus Christ, you will feel yourself becoming more and more a person of truth more and more person of love and kindness and grace and mercy, he will transform you like that. He really will. And there is nothing in this world that can transform you like that than he can. Look, I'm not poor, right? I'm not poor, and neither are you. I see your German card. I see your Volkswagens, right? I see your fancy Volkswagens. Farfig Nugent, back in the day. You and your fancy Volkswagens, right? Me driving a 10-year-old Honda. I know you're rich. So let's be honest, all of us are wealthy, right? But what can money really do? Money helps me to support my family, pay for my son's college, spoil my parents, my in-laws support their church. Money can be used to buy my favorite meal, which is zucchini noodles and two scoops of salmon, tuna and salmon. Three scoops of tuna and salmon. Mwah, my favorite meal. You can buy me a meal. Yesterday, we went, me and my wife went to Tyson Corner because we had, like Charlotte wanted to shop with her friends. And we just t- decided to make a day of it. And we went to La Sadaña restaurant in Tyson's. That's a Mexican restaurant. My wife never had Mexican before. All, her, all four years in America, she never had Mexican. And she, op- she loved Mexican food. Not the authentic one, the one in Manassas, where you go and I got racist slurs from. I went to Manassas' place, and they said, you're a Chinese guy. And I go, this place will be good. <laughs> <laughs> this place this place would be good because there's nothing like racism to communicate the authenticity of the place and you're absolutely right my wife will never go to that place but she went to the Mexican light one in Tyson's and it, was, and it gave her such joy and my wife money can buy her stuff like that But money is very limited in what it can do. It cannot make me a person of truth. It cannot make me love my wife more. It cannot cannot transform me into a person of grace and kindness and mercy. Money can't do that. Money cannot make me into a better human being.
1: Right? Right? Only God can. Only Christ can. That's why he's far better than anything in this world.
0: But money is very tempting. Verse 9. It says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. Money offers temptation. Money, perhaps, is the greatest of temptation. Why? Why is money such great temptation? If you think about it, money is a visible representation, a visible promise of what you think God can do. It's a substitute for God. It's a more visible, immediate substitute for God. When you have money, you think you can have satisfaction. If I have enough money, I'll be satisfied. If we have money, we think we can be secure. If we have money, we think we can have glory.
1: People respect me and love me.
0: If we have money... We think we, have control, we can have control over our lives. That's the allure of money, isn't it?
1: Who needs God
0: when you have money? That's what the money promises. If money can satisfy you, if money can protect you, if money can make you happy, if money can make you be important. Why in the world would you need God?
1: Right? That's a temptation. And if you think it through,
0: (laughs) okay, that thought will lead you into a trap. That's why it says, verse nine. It's, 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 we fall the temptation into a snare. A snare is a trap. It will trap you. If you think money can give you what God can do, then you will pursue money rather than God. The trap is, money, like I said, offers you a visible, real, tangible. Promise of satisfaction, security, and comfort. Right? Look, yesterday, like I said, we went to Tyson's. A lot of shiny objects at Tyson's. Not Tyson's one. Tyson's one. oh my gosh, it was almost like an apocalypse. Like everyone was at Tyson's yesterday. It was worse than Christmas. So we got out of Tyson's one. Right? It was really, every, it was crazy yesterday. And we went to Tyson's two. My wife goes, ah, oh, peace. Yeah. Tyson's two. That's the Bougie Tyson's. There's a lot of shiny objects there. And the shiny objects is saying, it's promising a lifestyle, isn't it? If you have this, if you construct your life around this, you will be happy. You'll be satisfied. You'll
1: be secure. It's right there. It's visible. You can measure it. Right? You don't need God. You just need this. Isn't that how Eve was tempted in the garden? Eve, Satan says, did God really say this and this to you? Eve, this
0: fruit is a gateway to everything that you possibly want. The fruit is a tangible object, wasn't it? God's promises are invisible promises. The fruit is the
1: tangible promise. Take
0: it. Build your life on it. That's the same temptation that Satan offered Jesus, didn't it? Jesus, you're hungry. The stones look like bread.
1: You need bread. You need tangible things in the world to live. Devote your life to it.
0: People devote their lives to it. Right? And they no longer have a relationship with God because what money offers is more real than what God offers. That's why people work themselves tirelessly, too tired to worship God regularly, too tired to fellowship with God's people,
1: too tired to worship God on Sunday. We work ourselves to the bone to get money, too tired to pay attention to what is truly important, which is our relationship
0: with God. And we think God will understand. God will understand me working hard. God will understand me working so hard and ignoring what is important, which is our relationship with Him. God will certainly understand. God, does he understand? I think he understands the temptation, but he is worried and concerned. Not concerned. I don't know what the word for it is, but he knows when you ignore him long enough, your faith will deteriorate and disappear. If you don't, the biggest and bad something that we make is we think, we can ignore our relationship with God and, God and nothing will change. No, 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 it will change. Look, verse 9. Into a, sn- into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires, that plunge people into ruin and destruction. If money is your substitute and if you ignore God, then he will lead you into desires and plunge you into ruin and destruction you will start to do anything and everything for money. When you, there's no, like I said, there's no neutrality here. When you stop paying attention to God, when you worship money besides God, it will lead you into a rabbit hole that will quench your, that will quash your faith and lead you into a destructive ruin. There are people in the Bible who does it. There are all all these examples of the Bible. Of people who were ruined because of money. Who? Number one, Judas. Judas was a disciple of Christ. But it is for money that that led him to betray Christ, right? The rich man and Lazarus. Remember the parable of rich man and Lazarus? There was a rich man, he mistreated Lazarus. Because he thought Lazarus was poor. Because Lazarus was poor and he was rich, he treated Lazarus like a dog. Money leads to pride, which leads to mistreating other people. The parable of the rich fool. Jesus says there's a a rich guy who spent his entire life building his wealth. And after he built his wealth, he spent the rest of his life building storage houses where he can store his wealth. But the night before his storage house was completed, he died. Jesus called that man stupid and foolish
1: because he's wasted his life. When you say no to God and start pursuing frivolous things, your life will be pitiful and useless and meaningless.
0: Right? Be careful. The question is, how do you know whether you love money or not? How do you know? Water, and, 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 and I'll make it short. I'm almost done. How do you know whether you love money or not? Do you love money? You'll say, no, Pastor J. I I love God. Okay, let's, let's see. These are some of the questions I got from John MacArthur and Alistair Begg and other sources. In the, uh, like other sources. These are some of the tests whether you love money or whether you love God. Number one, if the motive for your work is not for the excellence of your work, but for for, for, for just getting a paycheck, then I think you love money. If the reason that you're working is so that you can just earn a living, and if that's all that your job is, then you're really living for money and not anything else. Look, work is important so that work can provide us with money so that we can live. That is true. But work is more than a means to a paycheck. Work is you're mimicking God. You're mimicking the excellence of God in this world. And if you're totally ignorant of this, if work is just there to provide for your means, to provide for your money, and that is it, then you're really working for money. How do you know that you love money, you are not content with what you have. Look, this doesn't mean, right, obviously there are people who, who, who don't make livable wages. Like Caleb worked for Giant over the summer, and his, all his co-workers were old, like old, older people, like my age and older. And what Giant pays them, they're just scraping by. That motivated Caleb go, oh man, i got to study harder, because I don't want to end up like that. There are people who are scraping by, right? But if you have enough money for housing, for clothes, for food, but if you're never, if, if you're, if you're not content with this, and if you're always desiring for more,
1: then you love money. If you, if you love money, if you, if you.
0: Okay? You love money. The way that you love money is you love flaunting your status with the money that you earn. If the money is used primarily to flaunt your status in life, those ugly Balenciaga sneakers you saw? Have you seen Balenciaga? You guys don't know. There's these sne- Balenciaga disgusting sneakers that cost over $1,000. It has Balenciaga logo on it. If that's your M.O., Right? If you are sponsored by Mercedes-Benz, Louis Vuitton, Chanel, if you're sponsored by those companies, by paying for their stuff, if you need money to flaunt who you are,
1: then you love money.
0: What else? If, you are, if you're not giving your money away, if you're just receiving and not giving it away, you love money. Look, we are called to mimic God in his generosity, right? Like, this is what you do every night. Just be, just sit down alone in the dark and just think about all the ways that God has provided you for that day. Right? Yesterday at Tyson's, like, we almost got in a car accident because it was raining and people couldn't see. And just, and I just, like, at the moment I didn't know, but as I was reflecting back upon it last night, that's God's grace, God's, that's God's protection over me. There was a, it was a parking nightmare, and we couldn't find parking, and I was getting nervous and frustrated because I couldn't find parking. But we went to the big garage, and we found the prime parking spot, and I didn't know it at the time, but looking back that, that last evening, that's God's grace when you actually sit down and think about all the practical ways that God has provided for you for that day, you will know he's merciful. And when you realize how merciful he is and how gracious he is to you, you also realize you're called to mimic his generosity to other people. But if you're not generous with your money, if you're hoarding it for yourself and not giving it away, how are you mimicking God's
1: generosity? You're a lover of money. If you're always thinking about money, if you're always thinking about afraid of losing your money, you're a lover of money.
0: And this isn't an innocent love. It isn't first love. Like it isn't puppy love. You know puppy love these like dumb love the teenagers get into, innocent love. Love of money is not innocent love. It's destructive love. So destructive that Paul in verse 10 says, there are people who started in the faith as church leaders, but because of the love of money, they departed from the faith. Money ha- love of money has the ability To extinguish faith out of you. That's true. In the parable of the sowers, Jesus says, there's one seed who fell on the thorny soil. And that thorny soil represents people who listen to the word of God. But the word of God does not bear much fruit in their lives because they're too much concerned about money.
1: It has a way of choking faith out from you. Before examine your life? Is God your treasure? Really, truly, in your life, is God your treasure? Or is money your treasure? Jesus
0: says, You cannot serve both money and God. You can't do it. One is the treasure of the other. What is your treasure?
1: Pray that God will be your treasure. Let's pray.